following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. We are coming to our time in the Bible this morning, and we've been working our way through the book of Daniel. We've reached Daniel chapter 8. And uh, I'm going to read that for us, and uh, then we're going to dig into it. So let's be turning in our Bibles. There should be one nearby you. Daniel chapter 8 is on page 894. Page 894. And uh, just to warn you, it's a weird one. So here we go. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In in the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched as the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me 
and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. And maybe you feel the same. <laughs> After hearing that. Before we pray and uh, get into the passage, um, as I said last time, we've entered the weird bit of Daniel. Uh, chapters 1 to 6 are fairly straightforward history. Uh, then chapters 7 through to 12 become quite strange with these visions of beasts and angels and horns. Worth just saying, before we get into it, why on earth are we looking at a part of the Bible like this? Uh, when there are so many other passages that might be a bit more straightforward. The big reason is that one of our convictions as a church is that the Bible, all of the Bible, is God's word. And because of that, we do want to listen to every part of it. We don't want to just sort of duck the bits that are a bit more complex. We've got this uh, confidence that uh, the Lord has something for us, uh, truth for us, blessings for us, things that we need to hear from every part if we duck out when it gets a, a bit complicated, we'll miss out on important things that the Lord wants us to receive. So I trust that in some sense we all need Daniel 8, and hopefully we'll, we'll get there. Uh, also, I don't know about you. I don't know if you're the kind of person that gets to a chapter like this and goes, oh, please turn the page to something easier. Um, I think for some of us, it's quite enticing. It's quite exciting and interesting to look at something a bit unusual and different. It's humbling to try and grapple with the details. It's been taking a little bit longer than usual to get through some of my preparation in recent weeks. But also uh, exciting to dig into the details. So uh, let's pray to get ourselves ready uh, to engage with this chapter. Let's bow our heads and ask for God's help. Father, thank you so much for every word of the Bible. And Lord, we pray for insight this morning. We pray that you would show us what these obscure visions and ancient history have to do with our own lives and our own knowledge of you and our, our walk with you. Lord, please give us insight that we need for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it's worth noting right from the start that this vision was a horrifying experience for Daniel. Um, I don't know if you remember, the last, the last time we were in Daniel, in chapter 7, 
The last verse of chapter 7 says, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale and I kept the matter to myself. Well, this chapter is worse. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. I don't know if a Bible passage or one of our sermons has ever had that effect on you. You've had to take some days off work to recover because it's been so dreadful. Um, Is that how we should react to Daniel chapter 8? Not every part of the Bible is there to comfort us. Some of it's there to warn us, to shake us up. Actually, though, I think from our standpoint, looking back on chapter 8 and all that it predicts, um, it, it gives us enormous comfort, actually. So we'll get there. Um, but why did Daniel find this vision so appalling and, uh, and horrifying? Well, here's why. It's a vision of a, a terrible, dreadful event that for him was in the future. It would happen after Daniel's lifetime. Something really awful was going to happen to the Israelites a few generations after Daniel. And don't forget, Daniel and his generation have just been through something terrible. He's been kidnapped from Israel into Babylon by the vicious Babylonian Empire. They've been in exile for a generation. It's been a terrible, terrible time. Um, And uh, since then, the whole of Israel had been taken over by Babylon. Huge numbers of people deported. Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed. In in many ways, the exile to Babylon is, is the big disaster that happens to God's people in the Old Testament. By, by now, Daniel's an old man, and he's been sort of, we'll, we'll see later in the book, he's been reading other prophets and realizing, oh, the time of the exile's nearly over. We're going to be free again. It's going to be great. But just as they're about to get out of this awful exile they've been in, Daniel then has a vision of another horrible thing coming in the future. It's a bit like, Imagine people celebrating the end of World War I in 1918. Maybe they're there, they think it's all over, it's absolutely wonderful. Maybe they've got children, they're longing for them to live in a world of peace and freedom. And then imagine if somebody were to say to them, oh, 20 years, there'll be another war, another world war. It'll be worse. Wouldn't that be just awful? An awful thing to hear. Or imagine you're in Ukraine in 2014 and Crimea has just been invaded and somebody tells you, oh, just wait till 2022. There's going to be a dreadful war. If there was going to be a war here in five years' time or 50 years' time or even 500 years' time, would you want to know? I don't know. I don't know. Would we want to know? Would we cope with that burden? Maybe, maybe not. God doesn't normally tell us these things. Because if he did, we'd probably just feel like Daniel, overwhelmed. So why does God tell Daniel about these terrible things that are to come? Let's get into the details and try and figure it all out. We're going to look at this vision in two parts and then see what God seems to be teaching us. So the first part of the vision... Uh, is uh, a vision of powerful empires. Uh, That's in verses 1 to 8, and then you get some explanation of it in 19 to 22. Um, Daniel, in verse 1, reminds us he's already had one vision in chapter 7. 
you can think of it this way. Chapter 7 is like a, a sort of panorama of history. So imagine getting your phone and sort of scanning history and going all the way through. And it goes through empire after empire after empire. And then the coming of the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God uh, seated on the throne. God's kingdom ruling the earth forever. Uh, so Daniel 7 has this whole panorama ending with his wonderful uh, coming of Jesus. But if Daniel 7 is a panorama, Daniel 8 is, is more of a sort of zoom in on a particular section of that. We see some of the same empires. We see a bit more detail. And verse 2 tells us something strange that gives us a clue. Although Daniel physically was in Babylon, in his vision, he was in the citadel in Susa. Uh, by the Ulai Canal, he says. I don't know if Susa is familiar to you. Um, the clue is that that is where the Persian kings spent a lot of their time, the center of the Persian Empire, which was to come after the Babylonian Empire that was still in charge as Daniel was, ha- was having this dream. Uh, it was their winter palace. Susa might be familiar to you if you've studied Nehemiah or Esther. Uh, that's where... Uh, the Persian kings in those books were, were based. So um, let's join Daniel in the vision. Ready for the, the weird and wonderful action? Verse 3, he looks up and there's a ram with long horns. So we're back in this strange symbolic world of beasts. And there's a weird detail at the end of verse 3. One horn was longer than the other and it grew up later. I don't know what you make of that. The great thing in, in chapter 8 is we don't need to guess. Um, uh, Everything is really clearly explained later on. And uh, did you see, as we read, who explains it to Daniel? So uh, drop down to verse 16. I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Gabriel, yes, that is who you think it is. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, the angel who came to Mary to announce the coming of Jesus. We're going to see more of Gabriel next week in Daniel uh, when he gives Daniel some amazing words that do point forward to Jesus. Gabriel seems to have this amazing responsibility of announcing things to come. And, uh, but here, Gabriel comes to Daniel and finds him terrified in verse 17, so terrified that he falls to the ground. He seems to be asleep in verse 18. Perhaps he's fainted or passed out due to these horrible things that he's seen. Um, but Gabriel treats Daniel with great compassion and restores him and lifts him up, ready to hear the explanation of the vision. It's amazing to meet Gabriel here, isn't it? Just a little sign, a little hint of promises to come of the Lord Jesus. If we know the Christmas story, it's why we want people to come to the Christmas journey and hear the good news of the coming of Jesus. Now Gabriel keeps saying in verses 17 and 19 that he's going to be talking about the time of the end. People often take that to mean that he's talking about the end of the world, um, sort of judgment day, return of Christ kind of stuff. I don't think that's quite right because of what he goes on to talk about it. He talks about history. He talks about what for us is in the past. For Daniel, it was the future. For us, the past, uh, the era of empires that we're going to hear about. So it's not about the end immediately. It's about an end, the end of this particular time of persecution 
that Israel was going to face. Um, but that may be a, a kind of model for future persecutions. Um, that's something that uh, we can ponder. So here we go. Glance down to verse 20. What is this two-horned ram? Very simply, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. We met Media and Persia last week. Uh, the next two great empires that would follow on from Babylon. And uh, we can make sense of those horns because in, initially, uh, Media was the biggest, but later, Persia became much bigger and the two combined to form one really big, very powerful empire. Maybe it helps to see it on maps. Uh, we can first have a look at this one. See the sort of orangey, horseshoe-shaped bit? That's the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and you can see the Median Empire, the green bit, sort of looming next to it. Uh, and that's a situation in reality for Daniel as he's in his dream. But then suddenly, Persian King Cyrus I takes control of both Media and Persia. And look what happens Wham! A massive empire, uh, which really fits the description of this ram. If we go back to verse 4, Daniel says, I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Pay special attention to that little phrase about power. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. This chapter says a lot about power, or apparent power, as we'll see later on. But if you lived in those days of the Persian Empire, which lasted a long time, more than 200 years, from 550 BC through to about 330 BC, it would have seemed overwhelming, uh, all-conquering. It would have been really difficult to imagine this vast, stable empire of Persia ever really being challenged, uh, or ever losing its supremacy. But then suddenly, a new animal lunges onto the scene in verse 5. Verse 5 says, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without even touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I'd seen standing beside the canal, charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. So who is this? We know the, uh, the ram is Persia and, 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 and Media. Again, we can glance down to verse 21 for Gabriel's explanation. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. It's really clear uh, if you sort of trace through history who this is. Alexander the Great, we mentioned him last time round. Um, he became ruler of the, the tiny little Greek kingdom of Macedonia at age 20. By age 30, he'd conquered a vast empire, including defeating and taking over the entire Persian Empire. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was just as if a goat sort of came across the whole earth without his feet touching the ground. So the map now looks like this. Imagine the shock after those centuries of Persian rule that seemed very stable. Suddenly, the whole area is ruled by uh, a European from Greece. 
And there's uh, one more strange development. In verse 8, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. So there's a picture. The goat now has four horns instead of one. And you can look down again at verse 22 for Gabriel's explanation. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. That is exactly what happened after Alexander. He died. He had no legitimate heir. Uh, He was only 32. Uh, I don't know what you did by the time you were 30. He conquered the world. Um, But uh, Daniel... Alexander did that and then died. And then his, his whole kingdom was divided up between four of his generals. Uh, here's the map of that. Uh, sort of unequal geographical areas. Um, but there are a, a couple up there in uh, Greece and Turkey, uh, Cassander and Lysimachus. And then the two biggest areas are the ones that we need to sort of pay attention to. The, the orange bit went to a guy called Seleucus uh, around the sort of um, uh, eastern side. And then the, the brown bit down at the bottom left, down in the, the sort of southwest, uh, that went to Ptolemy, uh, that, that bit of Egypt there. And for centuries, those two big bits, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic uh, empires, fought against each other. And if you look at where they join, um, which bit of land is right in the middle of the orange bit and the brown bit? That's where Israel is. That's where uh, the battles between those two empires very often took place. Israel got caught up in all of that. Now, (laughs) we've been through all sorts of things. Pause for a second. Um, Can I just ask this question? Why does God bother with all of the visionary stuff? Couldn't we just have had the more straightforward verses about which empires are which uh, and just details and information? Maybe that's your mindset. You forget the silly pictures. Go for the details. Um, I said last time that I might say a couple of things about this kind of literature in the Bible this week. Um, it is called apocalyptic literature. Uh, apocalyptic doesn't mean disaster. That's what we tend to associate with the word apocalyptic. It means revelation, things revealed. Um, It's a special kind of writing. You find it here in Daniel, bits in Zechariah, bits in some of the other prophets. Most of all at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Some people are really scared of these parts of the Bible and they don't want to go near them. They find them troubling, confusing. Other people obsess wildly about these parts of the Bible. Uh, imagining that they can discover all sorts of strange and esoteric and hidden secrets uh, that nobody else knows about. I want to suggest it's not there for either of those two reasons. It's not there to scare us off. It's not there to give us uh, strange secrets that nobody else knows about. God didn't give these visions to scare or confuse us, even though Daniel felt that way initially. Uh, I want to suggest the symbols are here Mostly to fire the imagination, to help us to feel this. Instead of just telling us about these powerful empires, God wants us to feel it, to imagine ourselves there, to enter into it. Imagine the clash of horns and the brutal fighting. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near this. It sounds really dangerous. 
Um, a few weeks ago in Bushy Park, I was there, and uh, there was a, a pretty spectacular fight between a couple of stags. And I managed to catch the last few seconds on film, so hopefully we can see this. So you could hear the crash, you could hear the defeat. It went on for a lot longer, I was a bit slow getting up right now. But um, uh, how did you feel when the beaten deer suddenly started running towards you? Uh, that was me <laughs> holding my phone. I was a long way away, I was, I was zoomed in quite a long way, but there was a little bit of a moment where me and a couple of other people went, ah, <laughs> is he coming? In that situation, you feel pretty helpless. You know that if it comes for you, it's going to be a load of antlers and it's more powerful than you and you're going to get badly hurt. That is what this wants us to feel. This was, in a sense, the bad news for Daniel and the Israelites. They were going to get caught up in a whole load of jostling empires, jostling animals. The land would be fought over by powerful kings and armies and there would be terrible times. But there's more, and it gets worse. Uh, so the second half of the vision is a vision of a persecuting enemy. If we look in verse 9, we find a character that we met last time in chapter 7, the little horn. And we saw last time he, he was a nasty piece of work, a king in the second century BC, whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Daniel 8 now kind of zooms in on him in horrible detail. Uh, so uh, here's the details. Let's just run, th run through them really quickly. Verse 9, he started small. He was uh, just one of the many kings of that Seleucid bit of the uh, Greek empire, that sort of Middle Eastern bit of it. But he grew in power, note power again, towards the south and east and towards the beautiful land. And of course, Daniel's talking there about his homeland, um, the land of Israel, the land God had said was beautiful and flowing with milk and honey. Why did Antiochus do this? We know this from history, actually. Antiochus wanted to defeat the Ptolemaic bit of the Greek Empire, the bit that was in Egypt, which was the other side of Israel. Uh, so we know he, he marched his vast army through Israel all the way down to Egypt. But he couldn't do it. And uh, just sort of side interest. There's a great story about why he couldn't do it. Um, you know the phrase, a line in the sand? Apparently a lot of people think that that phrase comes from this event. Um, the Romans were starting to get powerful and influential by this time. Apparently when Antiochus went into Egypt to try and conquer the, the Ptolemaic bit of the empire, the Roman ambassador showed up and basically said, don't do this or you'll be in trouble with Rome. And Antiochus apparently said, I'll think about it and was going to walk away. And uh, the Roman ambassador apparently drew a line in a sand in a circle around Antiochus and said, if you step across this line in the sand, then I will take it back to the Roman Senate that you will not obey Rome. <laughs> and so, caught in the line, in, in this uh, circle, Antiochus 
caved and gave up and said he would go home. Now, can you imagine him? Can you imagine his army? Can you imagine how bitter, how angry, how frustrated and fed up they were? And so off they went back north through the land of Israel. Extremely bitter. And history tells us he took out his anger in horrifying ways, unleashing dreadful, terrible persecution. Um, Run through the details of that. Verse 10. Uh, It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. It threw some of the starry host down to earth and trampled on them. What's that about? Well, remember how God told Abraham his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, the stars are being thrown down. We know that Antiochus massacred tens of thousands of Israelites, including the high priest. An awful time of slaughter. Anyone who insisted on continuing worshipping the God of Israel instead of turning to Greek gods was just rounded up and killed. Keep going, verse 11. This little horn set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Uh, we heard last time uh, Antiochus's kind of self-given name, what he wanted to be called, was uh, 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 Deo uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He sometimes put images of Zeus on his own coins. Sometimes it was his face, sometimes it was Zeus's face. He thought of himself as a manifestation of Zeus, as great as God, greater, he thought, than the God of Israel. So he, he made this very personal. Uh, he wanted to stamp out all worship of the God of Israel. We know he banned all sorts of Jewish practices, including circumcision, including the keeping of the Sabbath. You can read all about this in the books of the Maccabees, which were written in between the two Testaments. Uh, Carry on in verse 11. Uh, It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. His sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. The the centerpiece, the the kind of center of his attack on uh, the people of, of God in Israel was that he invaded the temple stopped the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices. He turned the altar in the temple into a pagan altar uh, on which there were sacrifices to Zeus. And remember, he thought of himself as the manifestation of Zeus. Verse 12 says, it prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Uh, Truth thrown to the ground. Antiochus apparently banned the Torah, the, the, the Jewish scriptures, He got his soldiers to find copies wherever they were and shred them and burn them. And he got away with all of this for years. So awful, awful time. And see the questions of the angels in verse 13. It's really interesting what they ask. The angels don't ask, how could God allow this? That's probably what we would ask. What they ask is, how long? How long before all this is done? And verse 14 gives the answer. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Evenings and mornings. um, There were sacrifices in the evenings and in the mornings. 
Um, and so this is probably talking about 2,300 of those sacrifices. Um, and because those sacrifices were twice a day, half the number of days, you get about 1,150. That comes to just over three years. Um, why does that matter? Well, remember chapter 7 talked about uh, Antiochus's persecutions lasting time, times, and half time. In other words, three years, three and a half years. I think this is saying the same thing. I think this is a number which refers to three and a bit years of the temple uh, having those pagan altars within it. Just think, as we sort of round up on Antiochus, of all the things that he tried to destroy and what their equivalent is today. The people of God cast down the church today. There are times, there have been times and there will be times when powerful people try to destroy the church. The sacrifice is cast down. What sacrifice do we look to as Christians? We look to the cross of Jesus, his death on the cross for us, which fulfilled and, and, and completed all of those temple sacrifices. And people often try to turn Christians against the cross. Why do you think you need that? It's so barbaric. Why would you trust in somebody being killed on a cross? Why do you think you need it? Do you still believe in sin? Do you still believe in sacrifice and and that kind of stuff? Come on. And the truth cast down. We too trust in God's word in scripture. And people very often will try and turn Christians against the Bible. You don't still believe in that, do you? That ancient book? Seriously? Don't you know about all the contradictions? Don't you know about all the outdated codes of ethics? I've been studying the Bible for a while. I'm still yet to to find any seriously convincing contradictions. Uh, The supposed contradictions are more fictional than real when you really dig into it. And God's ethics... Gosh, if you dig into it, his commandments are what we need in this world, not what we need to do away with. But people who want to oppose God tend to go for those things. It's not very original. Cast down the church. Cast down the cross. Cast down the Bible. Lots of others in history that have been like Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a bit of a model for later persecutors, uh, the New Testament describes. Last verses to look at are Gabriel's interpretation of all of this, starting in verse 23. As I read this from verse 23, I want you to notice what Gabriel says about power. We've seen all these mentions of power. Look at what Gabriel says, uh, starting in verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise, that's Antiochus, He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he'll destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Not by human power. He didn't arise by human power. 
his downfall was not by human power. And I want to just finish by applying all this to us in a couple of ways. And first of all, thinking about power. Remember the power. These nations, this particular persecutor, seem so powerful. But they can be broken. Their power has been broken many, many times. Uh, There's a a cycle of empires going through the book of Daniel. Uh, Another time I was in Bushy Park, uh, we were walking with the family, and there's a, a, a chap came walking past us who was holding a gigantic antler that he'd found. And sometimes you can find antlers that have been broken off. Uh, and it's presumably a, a particularly vicious fight or a collision with a tree or something. Um, and antlers can be broken off. These beasts can be broken. Empires throughout history have come and gone. During their time... Their power feels unstoppable. It feels like the Roman Empire will never end. Or it feels like, I guess it must have felt like in the, the late 1800s, the British Empire would last forever. But no, no empire has ever lasted apart from the Lord's empire. His is the only one that will last forever. These empires have all been so proud, thinking that they've taken over the world and they're there to stay. But they're not. I thought I'd quote uh, a a great poem. You've probably heard it. uh, Ozymandias by uh, Shelley. This is very evocative of an ancient empire that was once mighty and now fallen. I think we've got a little picture that can go along with it. Here is Ozymandias by Shelley. Oh, sorry. That's Antiochus. Uh, We can perhaps go towards the last one. There we go. Little picture. I met a traveller from an ancient land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Isn't that evocative? Mighty empires declaring their power over the world. So many have come. So many have fallen. The Persian Empire, Alexander, Antiochus. So many since then. And remember those words of Gabriel. There was power, but it was not their own power. There's a hint there of a greater power. Daniel 8 only really gives us hints, but hints of a higher throne, God's throne. God rules over history. As Daniel uh, 2.21 says, it's God who raises up kings and deposes them. And God, we see in Daniel 8, sets limits. Uh, Those 2,300 evenings and mornings, there's a set time and then there'll be no more. Have you come to terms with God's extraordinary power over history 
You might have all sorts of questions about God's power, the way he exercised it over history. But if you're a persecuted believer in God in terrible times, it's an amazing comfort to know that he reigns. It doesn't necessarily make your experience any easier, but to know that God's power is behind all is a wonderful thing. So remember the power. Lastly, remember the prophecy. This whole chapter is there to predict the future for Daniel, now the past for us. And we've noticed that wasn't a great deal of help for Daniel himself. He was overwhelmed. It was mostly upsetting for him. But in verse 26, Daniel is told to seal up the vision because he's told it's about the distant future. And I take it that means he's to seal it up, not to keep it secret, but um, to preserve it, to protect it. I mean, it was written down in his book of prophecies. So although it wasn't much good for Daniel, for later generations, the generation that went through all of this, well, it was wonderful. God was pulling back the curtain for them so they could see his plans and what was going to happen. Imagine if in World War II there'd been a document um, from God saying exactly what would happen, exactly how long it would last, exactly who would be involved and when and, and, and details of what would take place. That, that, that would be an amazing thing to have. It wouldn't make World War II any less awful. But it would point beyond to something bigger, something more wonderful, something we can trust and put our hope in, whether we live or whether we die. Does God always do this? Does God always pull back the curtains and, and give people insight into what's going to happen during terrible times? No, he doesn't. I've been talking to a couple of people in this last couple of weeks um, about circumstances in their life that they would love to just hear more from God about. Why is this person suffering? Why is this particular situation happening? And we can understand that desire to know, can't we? Why can't God tell me why I'm going through this? Why can't God explain why this particular suffering is happening? Well, maybe it wouldn't be good for us to know. Daniel found it an overwhelming and appalling thing to be told about this. Maybe there's a lot of things we'd love to know that would be just too much for us, and we wouldn't cope. It would make us ill, like Daniel. And so we need to trust God for the things that we don't know, and trust him to reveal the things that we need to know. Some people have responded to all this by saying, Daniel can't be real prophecy then, because he knew too much. It must have been written after the event. But the only reason to conclude that is if you don't think there's a God. If God exists, then prophecy can exist. And Daniel contains promises that go far, far beyond everything in chapter 8. Uh, lots more of that to come. We'll see Gabriel again. We'll see much, much more about Jesus. So remember, in terrible times, those two things that, that can be of in, enormous comfort to us and enormous comfort to our suffering uh, brothers and sisters across the world. God's power is behind the scenes. It can be unseen as it was here, but it is God's power by which kings are raised up and deposed. And God's prophecies that have come true. This is all in the past for us. We can see that it's been done and that God knew what he was doing, that it was all part of the plan 
and that we can trust him. And in the end, it's all going to be okay. And think of the even greater promises about the Lord Jesus in which we trust. And we've seen it all come true. Let's pray. There's a lot to process. Uh, the band's going to come up. We're going to respond in song about the rise and fall of nations again and our great God. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you so much for this vision. And it is a, a, a bleak chapter in some ways because of the horrors it describes. But also a strangely encouraging one. One where you show your hidden power. One where you show prophecies that came true in history for us to see. And Lord, I pray that in our world, which can be often so confusing and often full of dreadful things, we look in the news today and we see dreadful, dreadful things. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us trust in your power, trust in your prophecies, trust ultimately in the one who was prophesied to come, whose kingdom would never end, our great Lord Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who lives for us, the one who saves us. Give us trust in him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.